You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is here today covering the following three topics, from Acts chapter 9, verse 31 through chapter 11. Peter raises the dead. Second, Peter proclaims salvation to the Gentiles. And third, the church at Antioch. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George covering Peter Raises the Dead. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are going to begin this lesson by talking about the reality, the mystery of the Church, a truth which is the underpinning of the questions of this lesson. And in fact, we could say that it is the underpinning of the entire book of Acts of the Apostles. The mystery, the reality, the life, the worship, the truth of the Church. As the Church tells us at the beginning of time, the Father determined to call together in a holy Church all who should believe in Christ His Son. The Church was, the Church is, the plan of God, the will of God from the very beginning of time. In other words, there is a way in which we must acknowledge that the Church was already present in figure at the creation of the world. Now, in order to understand this, we need to simply look at and ponder what God has revealed regarding His will from the very beginning, His plan when He created the heavens and the earth. In creating man, man made in God's image and likeness, God willed that man live in communion with him forever. Man is created for God and to live in union with God. And in creating the whole order of creation, there is a way in which, because man is the summit of the order of creation, the pinnacle, that all of the created order was in a sense created for man, to be at the service of man so that God's will could be completed so that man could honor and glorify God, serve Him, love Him, and live in communion with Him. In a sense, man directs the whole created order back to God by using all things rightly. So, the church, the word church, actually means convocation. It's derived from the concept of convocation, an assembly of God's people. And Through the Word of God, God's Word convokes, gathers together, calls together the people 
of God. God was forming his family at the beginning of time. What is heaven if not the people of God living eternally in communion with him? And we already begin to do that here and now on earth. The church is the goal of all things. That may take us by surprise to hear that. But if we simply understand that the church is God's family, the church is the people of God gathered together and living in communion with him, we understand how it is that the church is God's will. The church is both the means and also the goal of God's plan. Because that goal is heaven. Heaven is the church. We have the church on earth, what we call the church militant. We have the suffering church, those in purgatory, who number among the saved. And we have the church triumphant, the saints in heaven already. It is one church living in the three different stages or aspects of the life of the church. But it is one church which is unified. Saint Clement of Alexandria, an early church father, in explaining this mystery, said that just as God's will is creation, and it is called the world, so his intention is the salvation of men, and it is called the church. It's beautiful. It's profound. That's why the early Christians said the world was created for the sake of the church. Now, the early Christians understood the purpose of the order of creation, but they also, in saying that, understood the goal of the order of creation, that it was the church. Therefore, when we speak of the church, we can see it as prefigured in creation, as prepared for in the Old Covenant, Israel as is a preparation for the church. The church is the new Israel of God. God in revealing, in choosing a people and setting them apart, making them a people of his own, he was preparing for the gospel. He was preparing a people, a nation, a body from which his son would take flesh and be born, from which his son would come into the world, because it was God's plan from the beginning that he would send his son. He willed the family of God from the beginning. But when man turned away from God, that covenant, that plan of God's was, in a sense, ruptured. And man became broken, divided. There was chaos. How does God respond to that? In his love, he doesn't let man just sit there in that brokenness. God's will will be done. He responded by already revealing the gospel, the Proto-Evangelium, God immediately, in a sense we could say, rushed out to man in love and began gathering him together as soon as the fall occurred. The church, God is still gathering the people to himself in spite of the fall, immediately after the fall. So we have that preparation in the Old Covenant. The church is founded, founded by the words and actions of Jesus Christ. So it is prefigured in creation, prepared for in the Old Covenant, and now in the New Covenant of Christ, his Son, the church is realized. It is fulfilled. It is founded by the words and actions of Jesus Christ and fulfilled 
by his redeeming cross and resurrection. So the church then becomes a reality. It is born from the pierced side of Christ on the cross. The church is manifested to the world as the mystery of salvation. The church is in the world as the sacrament of our salvation. A sacrament is a sign and also an instrument. The church is the sacrament of our salvation. The church is manifested to the world on Pentecost, manifested as the mystery of salvation, and that manifestation occurs through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The church then is revealed and sent out into the world. And finally, the church is perfected in the glory of heaven as the assembly of all the redeemed of the earth. That's what heaven is, simply. It's the assembly of God's family. It is the assembly of all the redeemed of the earth. Secondly, it is worth pointing out the four marks or characteristics of the church as one holy Catholic and apostolic. Marks, features, characteristics that have been present, which have been essential in the church's formation from the beginning. The church has always believed and understood her identity as one holy Catholic and apostolic. It helps us to understand that the mission of the church in the world is not in addition to the mission of Christ and the Holy Spirit. The mission of Christ and the Holy Spirit is brought to completion in the church. It's not as if the church in the years or centuries following Christ's ascension into heaven gathered and tried to understand her identity and tried to figure out her goal and her mission and how she should go about accomplishing it. Much like groups do nowadays, institutions, it's a natural human activity, that in founding an institution or having a group with a certain purpose, the first thing they do is sit down and they say, who are we? What is our identity? The identity is based upon the purpose. And from that, the group will write a mission statement. But the church does not write her mission statement, nor does the church give to herself her identity. It is Christ himself who makes the church, through the Holy Spirit, one holy Catholic and apostolic. The church does not, the church does not make herself this way. She does not give herself these properties. She does not possess them of herself, as the Church says in the Catechism. But it is rather Christ who, through the Holy Spirit, makes his Church one holy Catholic and apostolic. In heaven, the Church in heaven will be, has to be, one holy Catholic and apostolic. It's essential in order to fulfill God's plan. All of this we have to keep in mind. As we study Acts of the Apostles, God is speaking about this profoundly through divine revelation given us in Acts of the Apostles. In what way is the church one? The church must be a unity. It is the only institution which, unchangeably, has remained one in her creed, in her sacramental life, her life of worship, in her doctrines and all that she believes. You can go anywhere in the world and go into a Catholic church and one and the same Eucharist is celebrated worldwide, the same Eucharist that was celebrated 2,000 years ago. 
all the teachings are the same, the doctrines are the same, the creed is the same, the seven sacraments remain unchanging. So the church is one. We are one people of God on earth. The church is holy. Yes, the church is made up of sinners, but the church is unfailingly holy because the Holy Spirit lives in her, works in her. The Holy Spirit dwells in her, teaches in her, inspires. The church is guaranteed by God himself. She is invincible. She is indestructible. She is holy. The church is also apostolic. To be apostolic, when we say the church is apostolic, we mean that she was founded in the Twelve Apostles. And this means a number of things. And in fact, you can read with regard to each of these four marks, an entire section is devoted to each in the Catechism. Apostolic means to be sent. And the church is in the world for the salvation of all mankind. So the church is sent out to all. Founded on the apostles, to whom has been entrusted by Christ our head, his power, a share in his power and authority. There is one head to the body of Christ. It is a monstrosity for a body to have more than one head. God has not created creatures this way. In everything, the way God creates, in each detail, God is teaching us lessons about his truth. There is one head of the body of Christ, one head of the church, and he is Christ. But he has a figurehead, the sign of a head, in his apostles on earth, in the church on earth. So the church is apostolic. So the church is one holy Catholic, she is universal, and she is apostolic. Now, when we look at the very first question, which is about Peter, we have to understand that what God is revealing with regard to Peter's preaching and to Peter's works, all of this has to do with God's will regarding the church, the gathering of all nations on earth. The church is the instrument of salvation, which we enter the church through baptism. When we look at the miracles of Peter, which St. Luke records at the end of chapter 9 in Acts of the Apostles, the first is a miracle that he performs when he goes to a town named Lydda. What's interesting about this miracle is that St. Luke very simply, in a very brief form, says that Peter went into this town Lydda. There he found a man called Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. So he was sick for a very long time. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ cures you. Get up and make your bed. St. Luke writes, Aeneas got up immediately. That's the end of the story. Now, this is very beautiful. It is so simple and told in such a way as if to say, and one day he went into Lydda and did this. The same kind of thing he was doing everywhere he went. It is, as all the miracles are, of Jesus and later of his apostolic church, they invite people to faith. They're speaking about the church. They're drawing people to the church. But all the miracles of Jesus and later of his apostolic church, there are miracles that continue to the present day in the church. And these miracles invite belief, but they are all signs pointing to the greater, the deeper, the higher reality 
a spiritual reality. So, whether we are talking about a miracle whereby a person is given hearing, that hearing is given because it points to the understanding and knowledge that we are given by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can hear not just in a natural way, but in a supernatural way through grace. The miracle of sight when we receive, when somebody receives healing and given sight, that points to the wisdom and the enlightenment that God gives us through the Holy Spirit. The exercising of demons points to how God wills to set us free from sin and death, from that which which holds us bound, holds us in shackles from which we cannot free ourselves. The mystery of raising the dead to life. This points to the mystery of the resurrection. And in addition to that, we can refer back to Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, which he did after he had been dead four days, so that the people understood that the body would have started to corrupt. Jesus wanted and still wants us to understand not only our resurrection to eternal life, but the resurrection of the body, of the corporal body, and the glory of the body at the end of time. Peter's miracle of raising Tabitha to life, the woman in Joppa, is a miracle that harkens back to a similar miracle of Jesus. St. Luke is deliberate in describing certain of the miracles that the apostles performed in such a way that they recall the actions or words of Jesus. Now, St. Luke does not invent this. He is simply recording. He is aware that when God ordained it, that the miracle had great similarity to a miracle of Jesus, or when Paul later will perform a miracle and it has similarity to an earlier miracle, that all of these are part of one, they are part of one mission of Christ and the Holy Spirit. The apostles sent out to do what Christ is doing, carry on his work, Christ's own work, through Christ's Spirit. It is one and the same work. That's why, as we said a few minutes ago, that the church's work and mission is not in addition to. It is one and the same. It is Christ and the Spirit's work present and being completed in the church. The mission of Christ and His Spirit are brought to completion in the mission of the church. So we sense this in a very profound way in the miracles of Peter that are recorded at the end of chapter 9 in Acts of the Apostles. So the Lord is giving his apostles a share in his own power and is recorded in the Gospel of St. John. Jesus says that he shall no longer call his apostles servants. He says, I shall call you friends. And why does he say this? Because as he says, I have revealed to you everything I have heard from my Father. When they perform the miracles, in a sense he says, you shall do these works and you shall do greater works yet. They are greater because it is merely human beings performing miracles. They are not divine. Christ is a divine person. And certainly and easily he performs miracles. But the apostles are just human beings. And sinful ones, imperfect ones at that. So Jesus says, you shall perform the same works I do, and even greater ones than these, because they shall do so by the power of Christ's Spirit.
Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering Peter Proclaims Salvation to the Gentiles. And now, back to Dr. George. The next question, which deals with chapter 10 in Acts of the Apostles, in this we deal with the profound event of Peter being sent by God to the household of Cornelius. Now this is a very important event in Acts of the Apostles. It's a very important event in the life of the early church and the growth of the early church. Why? Because Peter is sent to the Gentiles. He is sent to embrace, to welcome, to bring into the church the pagan peoples. We remember God willed at the beginning the salvation of all men. Every person that God creates, he loves infinitely and wills to live in communion with him forever. God continues to carry on his work the world over. There is a way in which we can say that everything going on in the world right now, except for the wickedness, the sin, everything that is going on in the world right now is about the church. It's about God forming his church. It's about God growing his church. It's about God bringing his people into heaven, where the church will exist for all eternity with and in God. It's all about the church. So we shouldn't be surprised to find out that God has solicitous love for the pagan peoples, for all peoples on the face of the earth. And as he himself reveals at the end, it's in the book of Revelation, when St. John has that vision, he sees people from all races and languages and nations gathered together in this convocation or assembly of God. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's a soldier. He's a pagan, but he is a God-fearing man, as St. Luke says. He is, he is a devout man. When in the New Testament we encounter that phrase, God-fearer, it refers to people who were pagans, who were Gentiles, but who believed in the one true God. They believed in the God of Israel, but they did not receive circumcision. They did not live in obedience to the Mosaic laws. They did not worship in the temple. They were God-fearers, and they believed in living a virtuous or an upright life. They were good people. They were devout people. They were people of prayer as well. Cornelius is one such person. And it's most interesting to discover that in this pagan household, God already was forming through the heart of Cornelius, this devout man, he was already forming a little people of God in preparing Cornelius and his household to come into the church. What did Cornelius do in his love for God? In his love for God, he taught his children, his co-workers, those who worked with him, his slaves, a soldier who worked under him, his relatives, his neighbors. He did everything to draw them 
into this knowledge of God and to live a good life. So he already, in a sense, is in following his heart and following the truth that God had written into his heart, he is already forming a family for God in his little place where he lives. And he is so docile in his heart, so open to the truth, that when Peter is sent to him, he recognizes that this is the truth for which God has been forming him all along. He immediately and completely embraces it and brings along with him his entire family. Now, it's as if God rewards Cornelius by sending him this angel and telling him to send to to Joppa. Joppa is modern-day Jaffa, which is part of Tel Aviv in Israel, to send to Joppa and to ask for Simon, whose name is Peter, and have him brought so that they can hear what Simon has to say to them. So he sends off three gentlemen who work for him. It is the next day, St. Luke writes, when Peter is hungry, it's noon, and he is preparing to eat, he is wanting to eat, but instead of satisfying his natural desire to eat, he puts that aside and he goes to the rooftop to pray. Now that's an important detail. Why? Because God is revealing to us that Peter has a hunger in him. Yes, he has a natural hunger. But he doesn't seek first to satisfy that. His hunger is greater for God, for the holy things of God. So he temporarily postpones his meal and goes up to the rooftop to pray. God speaks to us at different times in Scripture and the spiritual life about true spiritual hunger. That is to hunger for God. When we hunger to be holy, when we hunger for love, for the service of love. Hungering to be holy is a certain kind of hunger for God and the things of God. And from that hunger comes what is called in the spiritual tradition of the church, a hunger for souls. It means that we hunger that all might know God, that all might embrace salvation, that all might enter the church and enjoy all the fruits of the Holy Spirit poured out in the church through her sacramental life. So, Peter has this hunger. God is going to answer his hunger in an unexpected way. He is praying and then he is given this vision by the Holy Spirit and he sees something like a large sheet being held by four corners, reference to the four corners of the earth, being lowered down from heaven. And held in this sheet or contained in this large sheet are all of the animals, the reptiles, and the birds of the earth. They're all there. The tame, the wild, the seemly, the unseemly, they're there. And the Spirit says, he tells Peter to eat. Now he is hungry, remember. And the Spirit tells him to eat. Several things are happening here. We first of all know that Peter responds by saying, I have never eaten anything profane or unclean. We recall that in Judaism, under the law, there were certain animals reptiles, and so forth, that they could not eat. They were not to have anything to do with those. They were considered unclean. But just as so many of the signs that God, in fact, all the signs which God gives Israel in the Old Testament are imperfect and provisional because they are preparing for the gospel, they are preparing for a higher and new covenant, 
And once that new covenant is established and the reality is present, the signs then can fall back into the shadows. They disappear. The truths, the principles of those signs remain always. So whatever God was saying about clean and unclean in the Old Testament, that truth is forever true. It is forever firm. But the temporary, the transitory signs disappear. It is important to know that Jesus, in his public ministry, made clear that all things that God has given to man on earth as food can be eaten. They are clean. He declares all foods clean when he says, in no uncertain terms, it is not what goes into the mouth that renders a person unclean, which is what the Jews understood. He said, it is what comes out of the mouth that makes a person unclean. Why is that? Because he said, it is in the heart where sin resides. And the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. We reveal the sin in our heart through the way we speak and through the actions that we perform. So, Jesus had already revealed that all foods that God has given to man on earth, all that is edible, is clean and can be eaten. So, God is saying this again to Peter in a new way. It's a preparation for the fact that he is about to go and live for a period of time in the house of a pagan and eat his food and sit at his table and mingle with the pagan people. In fact, that very night, what Peter is going to do, he acts in charity, he invites the travelers who have come from Cornelius' house to come in and to stay overnight. He offers them hospitality. Love is the rule of all things. It is the rule of love which governs our actions, which must. So he invites them in, and no doubt he offered them something to eat. And he sat at table and ate with them. But there is a second profound truth that God is speaking about with regard to when the Spirit instructs Peter to eat of the animals, the reptiles, and the birds. God is sending him to the pagan nations. He is revealing to Peter that he must go, that he must not look upon any race or people or culture as unclean or profane, because God has created all human beings. All human beings are beloved in the sight of God, and the church must have solicitude for these people. The church must go out to these people and meet them in their desire and proclaim the gospel to them and not hold back as if they're unclean or as if being in their midst is going to contaminate us. This is not God's plan. So we are sent out when we go out among these people to evangelize. We don't go among them in order to live with them and as they live. We go among them to bring Christ. So God is speaking of this to Peter. Now, three times the Spirit tells Peter to eat, and then the vision disappears, and St. Luke says he is still pondering the mystery, not fully understanding it, when he is apprised of the fact that the sojourners from afar have come to get him and to bring them back. The Spirit tells Peter, that there are some men that are coming looking for you, and you must go with them. So Peter then goes down to meet them, and he says to them, I am the one that you are looking for. What did you come for? 
I am the one who will go with you. It's very mysterious because on the one hand, he is saying, I am prepared to do God's will. I know you have been sent to me. I am the man you are looking for. And what is it you would have me do for you? He doesn't yet even know. He's docile to the Holy Spirit. He's obedient, but he is still listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Of course, Peter asked them in to stay overnight because the journey would have been a long day's journey, perhaps some 35 miles. It would have been not the easiest journey to make in a single day. The next day, he accompanies them. They go off. They get to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius has gathered together not only his whole household, but all his friends, his relatives, his neighbors, everyone. In love, he wants everyone to come and hear the instruction, which the angel has said, Peter will give them. Peter goes in and and greets him and asks what he can do for him, and he tells him the story of how he came about to send for Peter. And Cornelius finishes by saying, Here we all are assembled in front of you to hear all the instructions God has given you. And Peter then in this moment, he is fully enlightened by the Holy Spirit. He says, And now I truly understand that God has no favorites but that anybody of any nationality who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter understands why he has been sent and what he is to say. This is why he immediately embarks on proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He begins by saying, You remember Jesus of Nazareth and what happened with this man? That would have been known all over Palestine. Cornelius and his household would certainly have remembered it, especially because because Jesus suffered such an ignominious death, such a shameful death. And he says, you remember this man and the great works that he did and those works were known all over and the truth that he proclaimed and the death, the shameful death he died. He said, well, he rose from the dead. He is alive. And I myself am a witness to this. It's back to that witness of the kerygma where the apostles say, and I myself have witnessed to this, that he is alive. I have spoken with him. I have touched him. I have eaten with him. I have drunk with him. And he says, and he has commanded those witnesses of whom I am one to go forth and to proclaim this fact to the world, that he has risen from the dead and that he is judge of the living and the dead. He is judge over all things, and that there is judgment. This is one of the first times that we hear Peter explicitly emphasizing the judgment of Christ to come. And that judgment, even Cornelius would have known this in his heart, it involves the balance between the virtue and the vice of one's life. So Peter concludes by saying, and all who believe in Jesus will have their sins forgiven in his name. It's very natural then, it leads naturally into baptism. But even before baptism, the sacrament of baptism is celebrated, the Holy Spirit responding to the love in the hearts of Cornelius' household and their faith, they completely, docilely embrace. They hang upon the words of Peter and embrace them, take them in entirely into their hearts, the Holy Spirit comes down upon them as if to say, as if to say yes to the faith and the hope and the love that the Spirit finds in the house of Cornelius. While Peter was still speaking, 
the Holy Spirit came down on all the listeners. St. Luke then concludes, and they received the sacrament of baptism. The household then, the ecclesia domestica, which is a phrase the church uses in referring to the little family of believers, which the church is. Every family, every Christian family on the face of the earth is, in a sense, a little group, a small family of believers, representative of the church. When we speak of church, as we pointed out a little while ago, there is one church founded by Christ, one church established. There is only one church. There's one church on earth. There's one church in heaven. There's only one true church, and that's the church of God. Christ did not found 10 or 50 or 100 churches. Now, it's true that many people, many groups, call themselves church. But as the church herself has pointed out, there is only one church. There can be only one church because God is one. God is not divided. His people cannot be divided. Now, when Catholics speak of being parishioners at a particular Catholic church, Catholics use that word church as they always have an understanding that they are a small family within the larger one family of God, which is church. When we as Catholics say, I belong to St. Mary's church or St. Joseph's church, by saying this, we are saying, I am part of this small family, which is fully united with the one true church, the only one church. So all the others, there are many ecclesial communities, as Pope Benedict has pointed out, existing in the world, but we do not have many churches. Whenever there's division in understanding the truths, in the sacramental life, in worship, in the creed we profess, in the doctrines of our faith where there's division, then there's separation from the church. There can only be one unchanging church. It's beautiful that in Cornelius' household, God was forming a little family, and already it was a sign of the church, the presence of the church. It was like a figure of the church even before it was accomplished or brought about in God. We must always remember that every person, every family, every race, every culture on the face of the earth, God destines for each and every one of them the same mystery that he gave to Cornelius and his family. God is preparing every heart, every family, for exactly this encounter. We can be open to it and receive the gift of salvation through the sacrament of the church, or we can reject it. But there is no one who, on Judgment Day, will go before God and say that they did not know God's will. Either we embraced it and lived it, or we did not. When the church teaches that outside the church there is no salvation, what she is teaching about is the fact of the mystery of the person of Christ as the door to our salvation, the one and only door, and therefore the church which he founds for our salvation as the mystery of our salvation as that sacrament on earth. Everyone who gets into heaven, who enters the church, will enter through that one and only door, whether they are aware of it or not. All those people, so those who know that the church is the sacrament of our salvation and who reject it, 
they place in jeopardy their soul. But the church has never taught that anyone who's not Catholic automatically goes to hell. That's ridiculous. The church has never believed it. The church has never taught it. But the church has taught that there are many people, good people, God-fearing people all over the face of the earth who believe in God and who serve him and love him and who live virtuous lives. And these very people, they may not be Catholics on the day they die, but because of what they reveal about their heart, they would be Catholic if they understood the mystery of the church. They would have embraced it, just as Cornelius and his family does. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering the Church at Antioch. And now, back to Dr. George. And finally, then, we come to chapter 11, which interestingly begins with Peter returning to Jerusalem, where some of the Pharisees, some of the Jews who are converts to Christianity, come up to him and protest. They protest the fact that he has just spent time living with the Gentiles, eating with the Gentiles, that he has gone out and welcomed the Gentiles into the faith without requiring circumcision of them. It's the whole thing, the whole picture. Now, two things we want to note about the first part of chapter 11. The first is the controversy that begins. In this particular instance, Peter then takes the time to explain in detail to them exactly what occurred, how God had revealed this vision to him, how God had sent him to the house of Cornelius, how God himself had spoken through an angel to Cornelius and asked Peter to come so that he and his family could hear the gospel message that Peter had to proclaim. And he explains that the Holy Spirit came down on them. They accept this, and then they rejoice in it. But St. Luke is hinting at the controversy which is going to grow and be stirred up in the church, which in a short time is going to be resolved by the convening of a council of the apostles and the elders in the holy city of Jerusalem. And this controversy has to do with welcoming the Gentiles into the church because they have been pagans. And the question is whether they should be circumcised, whether they should have to embrace certain aspects of the Mosaic law. And they will end up resolving it by saying no, because now that we have Christ and baptism, Christ has, the new law has abrogated the details of the old law. The second purpose of this section, which is rather lovely what St. Luke does, he walks through all the details of the story that we have just heard in chapter 10. Now, we might be a little surprised at this. Why would he take the time to retell all these details? We've all had the experience of reading a book or going to a movie that is very nuanced in the details, in the words, in the events, that all of the elements are very rich in meaning. And when we get to the end of the story or the end of the movie, the ending is 
more than we imagined. It exceeds what we thought the ending would be. And it surprises us and delights us. And then we go back and we see the movie again or we begin reading the book. And the second time through, as we are taking in again the words and all the details of the events, we are given greater understanding of how everything is connected and of the meaning behind that that the author intended when that was being spoken or revealed the first time through. And we not only have understanding, but we savor. We savor the details because we see how lovely and deliberate they are and how everything fits so beautifully together and how rich everything is. St. Luke is doing exactly this at the beginning of chapter 11. He's retelling it and our mind is going back to the details of the story and even as we read, God continues to expand, to enlighten, to grow the mystery in our minds and in our hearts. The second half of chapter 11 touches upon the foundation of the church in Antioch. This too is a very important event in the early life of the church. When we speak of church, of the early church, we speak of the church of Jerusalem because there was a church of Jerusalem formed largely of Jewish converts to Christianity so that we can speak of the church in Jerusalem. Early in the days of the church, God gathered together many, many Gentile peoples, pagan converts to Christianity, and they were gathered in the important, the fairly large city of Antioch. And it is God's own work. All of a sudden, people start to hear of this community, and they start gravitating towards it, and there is a considerable development of this church at Antioch. The church at Antioch was a large church and an important church, and very likely second only in importance to the Church of Jerusalem in the early life of the church. It was a very important church. And if we look at what St. Luke is telling us, people were coming from all over, from Phoenicia, from Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, and from Cyrene, and going to Antioch, where they established themselves. They rooted down. They started to live because there is something in us that wants to live not in isolation from our true family, but we want to find a place where we can live our life of faith. Even now, if we move about the world or move into a different city, if God is important in our life and the life of our Catholic faith, the first thing we do in finding a place to live is we find a Catholic church. We find a place where we can live in the family of God in that spot in the world. And so we are drawn to that. So the people were in Antioch and a lot of important things happened. Now Barnabas, who has been in Jerusalem, we remember Barnabas, who is the Levite, the Levite of Cypriot origin, St. Luke tells us. This is at the end of chapter 4 in Acts of the Apostles. He has spent time now in Jerusalem with the Apostles. There are people from Cyprus going there, other Gentile Christians. The Apostles send Barnabas. They figure he would be a good man to go there. He can understand these people. He understands their culture. He can help in that church. Remember, it is Barnabas who 
When the apostles were hesitant about embracing Saul, it is Barnabas who sort of takes Saul under his wing and who gets to know Saul. They become very good friends. In fact, Barnabas and Saul will travel together on Paul's, Saul's first missionary journey. Now, when Barnabas sees the marvelous things that God is doing in Antioch, he, knowing where Saul is, goes to Tarsus because Saul has gone there, evidently in sort of a quieter period, waiting for the Lord to show him what to do next. Barnabas goes to Tarsus and brings Saul back to the church in Antioch. And St. Luke tells us, they stayed there together in that church a whole year, instructing a large number of people. In Antioch happened also to be a physician named Luke. And Luke comes into the church at Antioch. Luke is from Antioch. We find out from St. Jerome that he lived and worked in Antioch. And he and Paul become friends, and it is Luke who will later be St. Paul's traveling companion in his missionary journeys. Something for which we are grateful, because Luke kept careful records and notes. He was trained as a physician. And because of that, we have the Gospel of Luke, which has a certain Pauline flavor to it. And we have the Acts of the Apostles written by Luke. And from this point, or a little later in Acts of the Apostles to the end, we are going to have a recounting of St. Paul's missionary journeys because Luke had the notes because he traveled with him. All part of God's plan in handing over to us what God wants us to know about the formation of the early church. And then finally, it was in Antioch where someone by the name of Agabus, who was a prophet, who had the charism of prophecy, St. Luke tells us, who prophesied a severe and universal famine that was going to take place in that part of the world which did a few years later. And so he's given that charism of prophecy. Now, what do we know about this? First of all, God gave many charisms to the early church, just as he continues to give charisms to the church down to the end of time. The charisms of the Holy Spirit are always present in the church to a greater or lesser extent according to God's purposes and what he wants to do in, in a given time and place. Charisms are special graces, gifts, blessings, or benefits given by God. Charisms are not the same as sanctifying grace, which is a stable and habitual disposition. It is a state of grace. It is a habitual state of grace, which remains so unless the person himself or herself ruptures their relationship with God. Charisms are not the same. Charisms are given by the Holy Spirit in times and places and moments for the upbuilding of the church. If a person receives a charism, they are not to see that, first of all, as their own property, but they are not to see it as something which they have in a permanent way, which they can exercise anytime, any way they want. If a person has, for example, the charism of healing, that person understands very well that he or she is a servant of God and they are only too happy to pray with, to pray over other people, to ask God for healing. But they have to leave everything in the hands of God. Even people who have the charism of healing cannot heal all the people over whom they pray. 
because they understand it's God's will, whatever he wants to do. The same would be true of the charism of prophecy. St. Paul enumerates the charisms in chapter 12 of his first letter to the Corinthians, and they would include, for the most part, utterance or expression of knowledge, utterance or expression of wisdom. These would be charisms given, for example, to the doctors of the church, who have insights, enlightenment, not only to understand the truths of salvation, to understand the scriptures, but they can also explain them in such a way that people can easily grasp the understanding. So they're given these charisms for the upbuilding of the church, for teaching, for example. There are charisms of healing, the charism of miracles, when Peter raises Tabitha to life. He is doing so by a charism given by God. There is a charism of tongues, and that has different types or manifestations. The charism of interpretation of tongues, the charism of discernment, and these, of course, are just like all the charisms given for the renewal, the upbuilding of the church, and the needs of the whole world. Therefore, they are always oriented toward sanctifying grace, towards God's plan, which is salvation. And they must always be at the service of charity. They are always at the service of charity. Through these gifts, the Holy Spirit allows people to associate in a particular or special way with his work, and he enables people to collaborate, to collaborate in the salvation of others. It's an amazing thing. Now, the reasons that God gives charisms, we cannot possibly know them all in this life. But we see, we see the movement of God's hand and we respond to it. When Agabus prophesies the famine that is to come, the church hears it and responds. And what does the church do? They immediately decide to take up a collection to send relief so that each would contribute what he could afford and to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. What a beautiful thing. One of the things that God is certainly doing by having Agabus speak prophetically is that he is binding the church together. He is forming this communion of persons. How lovely that he would send the pagan Christians with relief, with help, to Judea, to the church in Jerusalem, to the Jewish Christians. In this, God is building up his church. He is deepening and he is confirming love, charity, which is the ultimate goal of all things, for God is love. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George will be covering chapter 12 through chapter 13, verse 12, which will include the following three topics. Peter's imprisonment by King Herod and deliverance. Second, the Holy Spirit sets apart Saul and Barnabas for his work. And third, Paul's treatment of Elymas the magician. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. 
All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. Thank you.